0: Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. So good to see you today. Um, my name is Chris Colsey. I'm the lead pastor. And if you've been here in the last few weeks, uh, you haven't met me yet. Um, it's because kind of at the middle of the summer, um, I always pull back to really kind of focus on long-term planning. And so over the last few weeks, I've been kind of planning out, mapping out the next kind of September to May movement in this church. And so I'm super fired up and you know, I've been enjoying kind of being able to jump in through online, but I can just say, man, there is no comparison. Um, I'm so grateful for the team and the online experience, but there really is no comparison for being in this room. I mean, like, I was like, we can just keep going musically. Like, I'm good. I don't even need to speak today. Um, You'll probably notice uh, that it looks like I went through puberty while I was away, um, which sort of vocally did happen. We had croup get into our house and Hit, hit our kids, and then it just hit my vocal cords, and I really did go through puberty again. So um, I, I'm going to be doing a, like, Barry White benefit concert tonight because I've got this small window while my vocal cords are rebuilding to really, can get enough of your love, babe, right? Like, to be able to kind of totally rock it. And so I'm super excited. I hope you're super excited to be here today, and that's why I went through puberty. Um, so um, a random question, but, uh, like, I absolutely love um, understanding culture and understanding history. And earlier this year, um, I became fascinated um, over this idea of the Polynesian culture. And the Polynesian culture, really, if you were to kind of look at it on a map, they kind of inhabit kind of all of the Pacific. So if you've ever been to Hawaii or Fuji, it's the same kind of fundamental culture. And what's amazing is that in the... Trans-Pacific, over the last thousands of years, like, the Hawaiian islands had never had a population. And they're middle of nowhere, and then this Polynesian people who were able to navigate were, were able to, like, find the islands and inhabit it in the same way with Fiji, in all of those other kind of island cultures that rose up in the Pacific. And I, and really was like, I don't know about you, but, like, I, I get lost when I have a GPS, Right, And so the idea that somehow in like a small sea kind of vessel that this group of people singing sea shanties could navigate thousands of miles across the Pacific just blows my mind. Like if you pushed me out in the Pacific today with a satellite phone, a GPS, and a motorboat, I still don't make it back. <laughs> and yet they were able to do this as a culture. In some ways, what they learned to do I think is a, a really good starting point for the next two-week conversation I want to have around this concept to follow. And the reason the Polynesian culture, um, the people were able to do this, the reason that um, kind of explorers around the globe were able to do this over the last thousand years was because of one of the most significant stars in the night sky, the one called Polaris. Now, prior to this map, if I was a betting person... None of us in this room, including me, would have been able to walk outside in a night sky and point to Polaris. But Polaris has another name. It's called the North Star. And various cultures around the world, this star has different names, but they all essentially mean the same thing, the one that's fixed. You see, because of Polaris and its kind of directionality and where it is and Earth's wobble and kind of lean, the Polaris stays fixed through the night sky. And if you ever want to impress someone who is not listening today, you can be like, oh, by the way, there's Polaris, right? If you have a hot date coming up, and maybe that hot date really is just blown away by your ability to kind of point out one star, only one star in the night sky, here you go. Polaris is directly in line from the Big Dipper, and it's part of the Little Dipper, and it's the tail. And you can further wow them and be like, actually, Polaris looks like one star, but it's actually three stars. And they're like, oh, my goodness, mind blown. And it's, I mean, at that point, you should probably start playing kiss the girl um, or can you feel the love tonight because it's just happening at that point. I mean, it really is just happening at that point. All right. Anyways, that's, that's my contribution to your life. Whether you're married or you're looking to be married, I just gave you a gift. Teenagers, I just gave you A gift, right? It's like, hey, did you ever notice that's Polaris, and then it's just your arm. I mean, this is pretty much how I found Jenny, and uh, this one star did it. It transformed their life. It was amazing. I hope you embrace it too. But people's ability to focus and fix on Polaris allowed them to navigate thousands of miles across the Pacific Ocean and across the Atlantic Ocean. And this idea of being able to focus and fix and follow is really not too far off from the idea of Christianity. Because one of the very first words that was used in the Christian faith, the very first invitation that Jesus gave was an invitation to follow. And this idea of follow isn't some strange, weird religious thing. It's how people navigated around the world. It's how you and I learned our professions. It, It explains why toddlers, if you're a ever parented a toddler you ride a roller coaster of being like this is the sweetest cutest kid ever to holy moly I wonder if this is what like Hitler's family thought when he was younger because this is a sociopath just waiting to form like I mean they can swing that in like 35 seconds my son got put on steroids with his croup thing and it like and Roy like Roy rage is a real thing and like being around a toddler with that you're like should we just put them in a bubble that's like protective and come back and we can like drop off food and we we'll come back in a, like three or four days later? And why is he doing that? Because he's just following his impulses and his emotion. Follow is a very natural human thing. And it's how we navigate life. It's how we navigate who we are becoming. And so that's why there's no surprise that when Jesus walks up to his first ever potential follower, he says to them, hey, follow me. Learn from me. And over the next two weeks, I want to have a conversation around this word follow, looking at second to Jesus' death and resurrection, the most extraordinary moment in the New Testament. It's found in the book of Acts, and if you're new to the Christian faith or new to the Bible, even if you've been around church or the Christian faith for a while, you know, the book of Acts is part of a two-volume set written by Luke. Luke was uh, essentially a Ken Burns of his day. He was a documentarian. He had been paid money to go research this thing called the Christian movement. In order to to thoroughly research the Christian movement well, um, Luke settled on the idea of researching and writing two separate books. The first was on Jesus, who was the central figure of Christianity, which is where the book of Luke comes from. It's a research documentary kind of dig in, investigative journalist approach by one of the smartest men um, in that area, in that region at that time. And I can say that because Luke writes in the language of his day in a way that when you compare all the other New Testament writers, you get a sense when when you read their writing um, really how sharp and how educated they were. Paul was incredibly brilliant. When you read what Paul wrote in the original language, you pick up on Paul's brilliance. Luke, when you read what Luke wrote in the original language of the day, Luke's genius screams at you. Luke uses words. He's like those people, when you're around him and they're like, oh, the juxtaposition of the Polaris with the big dipper. And you're like, they just use big words. And it's not like they're trying to impress you with the Polaris thing because the fact they also know big words. It's like it just flows out of them. Luke was that way. He uses words in his writings that you don't see in other books in the New Testament because Luke was brilliant. So Luke writes the first book on Jesus, and he writes the second book on the church and the, kind of the spread of this community across the world. And Luke embeds with those people. You can actually see it in the book of Acts. It, it goes from they to we, because he begins to travel with them. And he spends time with them, learning who they are and what they're about. And so he meets these people, which is why we have this chapter that we're going to look at today, because Luke becomes friends with this man arguably the second most influential man in Christianity, a guy that we now call Paul. At the time, kind of like Prince, had a different name. He was like Saul. And if you were to kind of map out the book of Acts, Acts 1 through 7 kind of has an upbeat like Pharrell Williams, life is good, and there's a little bit of drops and some minor keys, but for the most part, it's pretty up and to the right. And then you get to this section of the book of Acts, and it completely changes. It becomes like a Jordan Peele soundtrack. Like, you're like, I don't know what's about to happen, but it's about to be freaky and crazy, right? Like, Jordan Peele's movie posters, like, I can't even unsee them sometimes. Like, he's just one of those people who, you know, when he makes a movie, it's going to be crazy, creepy, suspenseful. And this is what, musically, soundtrack-wise, would happen at this point in the book of Acts that we're going to look at today, because the whole Vibe and emotional movement of the book of Acts transforms with these words, meanwhile, Saul. You see, up until this point, we haven't really known who he was. We just know that prior to this moment, he was there for the execution of Stephen. We know that Saul sat back watching people's stuff while they executed Stephen, who was the most famous kind of most... uh, influential um, Christian in that moment. And Stephen was brilliant. He was articulate. And he was a person who, who was known for his love and his action and how he served. And Saul watches him get killed. And he sees in the mob that there's a shift towards Christianity and that this is his moment where he can finally step in and do what he's wanted to do. You see, Saul is a follower of a specific type of Judaism a Judaism that was known for its complete religious commitment and devotion its meticulous understanding of all the commands in fact he was a this group they were known as Pharisees they were so diligent about memorizing scripture that the kind of the popular notion of the day was you could take a scroll because the codex the book form wasn't exactly kind of a common thing yet And so, you could take a scroll of a Jewish scripture and you could hold it up and drive a nail through it. And Pharisees were so committed to memorizing scriptures that they could look and see how far the nail went into the scroll. And they could tell you if it was a really sharp Pharisee, they could tell you where it landed, the sentence it was on, and the word it was touching. Like, fathom, like, that's mind blowing the depth and detail that they knew about the scriptures. But it goes beyond that. They wanted to make sure they were being completely obedient to God. So they went through all of the Jewish scriptures and settled on roughly the number 600 to 613. And and their conclusion was there's about 600 plus commandments that God has given us. And they turned it into a checklist to make sure that they were completely obedient to God. And one of the the biggest no-nos in the Christian faith, in fact, kind of the number one on the top 10 list for them, was that you shouldn't have another God before him. And if you did, it was called blasphemy. It was kind of the theological term. And so Christians walking around believing Jesus was God was committing the number one no-no in the faith system. So this is why Saul who is sharp he's trilingual he's being mentored by one of the brightest jewish scholars in all of jewish history till this day is still one of the sharpest jewish thinkers in all jewish history like he was a man who was up and coming and he was so zealous in fact he would write in other writings later in his life that he was flawless with keeping the 613 statutes like my wife honestly knows that if she sends me to the grocery store to pick up something that like eight out of the 10 items will come home but the other you should just expect that two of them will not make it or they'll be completely wrong and i'm like what i i thought an avocado was the same thing as a loaf of bread right like i mean it's going to be so the fact that this guy could hold in his head 613 things that he was flawless in keeping Gives you a little bit of an insight. He is arguably one of the most religiously devout, moralistic people to have ever lived on planet Earth. He makes your granny who goes to church every single Sunday, who knows all these things that you don't even understand. He makes her look like some like clubbing granny who goes out on Saturday like holla, you know. I mean, completely makes that woman look like, you know, "Uh uh-uh. Like, don't even mess with her. She's crazy. I mean, this is how completely zealous Saul was, which is why you see the words, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. Because here's the thing that's helpful. as, as a, just an aside in our culture right now. Most of us, we see people do stuff that we don't understand. And we're really quick to judge or we're really quick to label or to say they're stupid or they're wrong. And here's the thing that you see in this text and that you see in every human being you know, the ones that are frustrating you right now and the ones that you're always like, yes, I'm totally agreement, is that everyone, when they're doing what they're doing internally, there is a narrative that they have that says it's right and it's rational. So Saul, who is breathing out murderous threats, is doing what is very right and rational in his mind. I'm not saying it's right or rational. But in his mind, it is. And I think this is actually a really helpful insight just going through the course of everyday life to realize that everybody who's following any type of ideology, any type of worldview or belief, any type of political system, fill in the blank, any type of podcaster or YouTube star, they believe in their mind that what they're doing is right and rational. And this is what Saul is doing he's convinced that his view of faith is absolutely right. In fact, it's so right that to make sure he's doing it right, he's now going to the high priest and asking for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus is about 250 miles away from Jerusalem. The average person in the first century never traveled more than 110 miles in the course of their life, period. You know, Jesus, who arguably, the most impactful human being, God, who ever walked on planet Earth, never traveled more than 110 miles from where he was born. So the idea that Saul is willing to travel 250 miles helps you understand this is how committed he is. He's willing to journey twice the distance of what someone would cover in their entire life. Why is he going to Damascus? Well, because Damascus had one of the most significant Jewish populations outside of Jerusalem. There is an expansive network of Jews. And Paul, Saul, was so committed to making sure this virus called Christianity didn't spread that he was thinking, where else would this go and grow? I'm going to go there and stop it too. And because, random fact history, about 100 years before this moment, Julius Caesar, in an act in a moment to appease the religious leaders in Jerusalem, um, delivered an edict that gave the high priest um, an ability and authority to um, pursue and give them jurisdiction in Damascus with Jewish synagogues because there was that many Jews there. And so Julius Caesar himself, the first Roman emperor, had decided and had given this ability to police the Jewish people to the high priest. So this is why Paul goes to them. This is why Saul goes to them and says, I need jurisdictional papers to travel 250 miles to make sure Christianity doesn't keep spreading. I mean, this is insane. The 250 miles is, would be the equivalent of you setting out on a boat to, to head to, like, Antarctica. I mean, it just, like, it doesn't make sense to go that far in that day. And this is what he does. And he wants to make sure to see that if he found any who belong to the way, he doesn't even know that there are Christians there. He's just wanting to make sure that there's not. And if he finds men or women, he's willing to tear apart families and bring them all the way back to Jerusalem as prisoners. And really the subtext, because religiously, in, in the authority that the high priest would have given him, the bring them back prisoners to Jerusalem could have been done with a little bit of a wink. Because remember Stephen? Well, Stephen was violating Jewish law, and the penalty for violating that Jewish law was to stone them and to kill them. So this was a little bit of a wink and a nod. Oh, I'm going to bring them back as prisoners to Jerusalem. And yeah, they probably wouldn't have made it back. And so while Saul is traveling... As he neared Damascus at the end of this kind of weeks and weeks of travel, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, this bright light. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, Saul is an incredibly brilliant man. He'll tell this story three more times over the course of his life that we have evidence of. And in the course of telling, he'll give more details that we don't have in this first moment, which is that Saul had people who were traveling with him, which makes sense because most likely Saul was mentoring younger guys in the same way that he had been mentored by, Gilgab, um, by the man who had been mentoring him. And so being mentored by that, he would have expected to have his own followers, so they're traveling, and what we know is that they see a light and they hear a sound, but they don't understand what the sound is saying. And the reason this is really important is Saul, had he not had anyone with him, would have probably just concluded that he had reached a breaking point. He was burning the candle at both ends. He wasn't getting much sleep. He was pushing it really hard. Maybe this is all an hallucination. But because of the men traveling with Saul, it became very obvious to Saul. This was not hallucination. This was not a mental break. This was something that was actually happening to him. And so Saul says in response, who are you, Lord? So Corin Evans, I'm going to introduce you. This kid is a hero. He's 16 years old. He goes to high school in Pascagoula, Mississippi. And late one night, he was driving down the road, and the car in front of him turned right into a river and drove straight into it. And he immediately pulled his car over on the side of the road. He jumped out, and he began actual pictures, jumped in and started to rescue the three girls who were stuck inside the car that was now into the river. He's so incredible that this young man doesn't just rescue these three girls. The police, when they show up to provide assistance, one of the policemen with all of his heavy gear starts to drown too. And he rescues the policeman as well. So he saves four people's lives that night. What was fascinating about this story was that in the aftermath, when they started to do the report and understand why does three girls driving down the road at night just turn right into a river, what they realized was the girls had been told by their GPS, turn right now. And without even thinking or looking, they turned right into a river and drove into it. Corin's watching, he's like, what is happening? You don't do that. And so he jumps in. But remember when people are following, our default is not to ask certain questions. We assume we're right. We assume it's rational. So we keep following. And the thing about following is that whether it's someone or something, it always takes you somewhere. And the somewhere that night happened to be the river. And this is fascinating because if you look at Paul's words, Paul asks the question, who are you, Lord? Lord being not a, like, reverential thing, like him ascribing Jesus some special category, but just as a general rule, if you should ever happen to encounter a transcendent being with bright light who speaks to you, you should probably default to respect, right? Not sassy, not eye-rolling like some teenager, but respect. So this is what he does. He goes respectful, like, Okay, bright, light voice. How are you doing today, good sir? Right? Like, this is where this is coming from. And what's fascinating about Saul's question is Saul never once considered he was wrong. To the point that when he meets Jesus in the light, his first question is, who are you? Because the idea of Jesus being God was so far out of the bounds for him. He never even considered it was actually right. And I think as a really good practical point, there is a lot of good that can be done with asking the question periodically in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our parenting, in our finances, is to simply ask the question, what if I'm wrong? What if what I'm doing is wrong? How would I know? This is a question, I mean, this past week, I was literally sitting down, dedicated time, and I was asking the question of all the planning, all the kind of strategizing over the next nine months, here's where we're going, here's what we're doing. That was my dedicated session to say, what if this is wrong? Because there is a wonderful perspective that comes when you're willing to ask the question, what if how I'm parenting this one child the same way I'm parenting the other child is wrong? What if... The way I'm loving and leading in my my romantic relationship is wrong. And Saul never ever considers that he's wrong. And so Jesus responds, well, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. This moment, is one of the most profound moments in human history. It's arguable, completely arguable, that this one moment is the reason we're all in this room today. Because it is Saul who who has such an incredible experience that's so transforming that he literally starts to go out and tell people to call him Paul. Because there's such a disconnect between who he was and who he is. And it's Paul who then takes the Christian faith, which at that time had only been spreading within Jewish communities, and he decouples it from Judaism, and he goes beyond the Jewish bounds so that people who are not Jewish could hear the message. He's single-handedly the reason that the Roman Empire would eventually have in almost every major city a church that was specifically intentionally communicating who Jesus was to people who were not Jewish. And all of this happens because of this one moment. And I give you all that backstory because I really want you to understand Saul. Because if you grew up in church, you're familiar with this story and you don't feel the weight it has. So Charles Spurgeon, um, who's a, kind of a famous British preacher, told a story one time in a sermon uh, about this kind of salacious news story that was going around Great Britain at the time. See, there was this couple, this Bonnie and Clyde-type couple who lived in the outskirts and the edges and fringes of society there in England. And they, as Bonnie and Clyde, were known for kind of the different crimes that they committed and the rough life that they were living. And it became known to some of their family members that Bonnie had gotten pregnant. So family members and the community comes to Bonnie and Clyde and basically circles around them. That's not their real name, but that's pretty much who they were. And says, we'll buy the baby from you because we don't think a child should be raised in the life and the lifestyle that you have. And so they sell their child to this family who takes this kid and and allows another family to adopt him. And this family raises him, and completely exposes him to a radically different lifestyle than what he would have grown up with at home, with his biological parents. And Bonnie and Clyde continued to grow in their like, notor- notoriety and the, the scale and the viciousness of their crimes kept in- increasing. And over time, specifically Clyde of the, the couple, um, really started to hate rich people. So he began setting up on a a road that a lot of businessmen would travel on. And he would kind of ambush them and rob them and take all their stuff away from them and beat them. And one of the stories, one of the crimes that was reported, happened to come at a time when Clyde was really, really frustrated with rich men. So as this business guy traveled down the road, Clyde beat him so badly that it ended up killing him. He died. It was brutal. Because all of Clyde's kind of animosity and all of Clyde's frustrations got channeled into this one moment with this one businessman. And he was, he was caught and he was arrested. And in the course of the investigation, what they found was the businessman he'd killed was his son. His son, who while he was growing up and while he was becoming more and more successful, felt a tug and a pull to go back to his biological parents and to give them a chance that they gave him by giving him up. So he had a large sum of money with him while he was traveling that day because his goal was to appeal to his father. And to offer his father all the money to be able to start a whole new life. And what Clyde realized when the police delivered the report was he had not killed a businessman. He had killed his redeemer. And Paul saw that moment in the road to Damascus In that ambush had the same realization too. That he had been persecuting his Redeemer, the one that he had dreamed about when he was a young man studying scriptures, the one who had hope, the one who had potential, the one who was going to make everything in the world right, the Creator, the one who could fall into a mountain, who could make Moses' face glow, like that God, he had been the one persecuting him. And that does something to you, not just intellectually. It does something to emotionally and spiritually too. And Saul has what gets oftentimes labeled in this section, he had a conversion. Which is why you see at once, a few verses later after a couple days of working through the shock, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. God. And conversion is a strange word. If, if you've used it, you've probably used it in websites. You've used it in, you know, kind of sales pitches of converting new clients, right? But the, the root of the word conversion, the reason kind of throughout church history this was called the conversion of Saul is because at the root of the word conversion was a geographical turn. It meant to convert meant you walked this way and that you pivoted and you began to walk a whole new way. Right? Saul had traveled to the synagogues to deliver papers, to get prisoners, and now he was in those same synagogues, but he was preaching. The very message that he had come to stamp out, he was now speaking up about. Why? Because completely different turn. Saul is now going this way; he's had a conversion. But it doesn't do enough justice to just say that it was a a turn. No, No, if you notice, it says, all those who heard him were astonished, and they asked this, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? They're like, wait, is this like a bait and switch? Is he trying to, like, trick the people to speak up so he can arrest them? Because wasn't he the guy who was against them? This doesn't make any sense. I mean, and hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest, but now he's preaching to them? And they don't have a box for this. Because at the core of the conversion of Saul to Paul, at the, com- at the core of what it means to follow Jesus, is that not only is there a transformation and a whole different life redirection. It's that who you are is brand new. Even the story about you is new too. Later, Paul, reflecting back on this moment, would say this was a pattern that God intentionally chose him because he wanted to give the world a pattern of God's love and grace. He's like, he chose me, the worst of all people. Literally the very anti-Jesus one to be the one who proclaimed Jesus to everyone. He chose me, the one who had been moralistically perfect, who had checked all the boxes, had done all the right things to have the understanding and realization that he wasn't good enough so that we would all know that none of us are good enough. And this story, what's completely mind-blowing is you go back to the moment It's not surprising that Saul was traveling to Damascus. The profound surprise of this story was that Jesus met him along the way. Because all of us, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what limitations, no matter what declarations, no matter what's been done to you or said about you, put you outside the bounds of what Saul did. And the fact that God in his grace would pursue Saul is a declaration to all of us that the God who said, follow my instruction, Saul, is still the God who's willing to step into your life and my life too and say, follow me. It's crazy that he would step in that Jesus would show up to this guy. And Saul understands in that moment that who he is is not enough and who Jesus is is more than enough. He understands in that moment that no amount of his hatred for Christians could overwhelm the love that Christ had for him. It's powerful. That's what's at the core of what it means to be a Christian, is that we follow him. And that pattern that Paul describes is the pattern that we're meant. That to be a Jesus follower meant that at some point in our lives we've had this realization and that we've turned. And we begin to move in a whole different direction in our lives. Not just a different direction, not just a completely reorientation, but that our story becomes brand new too. And that... Like Saul, at this point prior to August 7th, 2001, I remember after I became a Christian, I had friends who would say stuff like this about me. I used to pick on Christians because I thought they were stupid. I thought they were moralistically boring people. And I loved picking on them because they believed, poof, the universe happened. And that God stepped in and kind of like cosplayed with humanity for a while. Like, that's so weird. And then I had an encounter that transformed my life and transformed my story. And that transformation of our story means that we live our lives differently. And what happened is eventually Saul grew more and more powerful, and he baffled them living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. They didn't have a box because he no longer lived in their box. And some of you, you need to hear today that the box you've been living in is not the box you have to keep living in. That there is a new box for you. And if you're a Christian, it gets even better. Because this idea of following him, I started this whole message with this idea of Polaris. And I don't want to take you right back to Polaris, but I want to give you a picture of why Polaris was such a profound star. Because this is a time lapse photo of the night sky. And what you can tell is every other star moves. Every other star shifts. And yet right in the dead center is this one tiny dot. And in the midst of the night sky, shifting, shifting, turning it's the only star that doesn't it's the only one that's fixed it's the only one that you can truly anchor to to navigate your way out of whatever you find yourself into and this became the central focal point of paul's life everything reoriented around that moment on the road to Mas- to damascus when he became a christ follower which is why he would write later that I've, when he was waiting to be beheaded on death row, that he would talk about his life like someone celebrating winning the Super Bowl. He's like, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the race, and now there is in store for me a crown of glory. And it's like, hey, hey Paul, you know that that crown is going to be put on a head that's about to get chopped off, right? He's like, no, no, you don't understand. That's my fixed point. Everything. That's why I could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can walk through the deepest valleys. I can stand on the highest mountains. My life can fall apart around me to pieces, and yet I still have peace. Why? Because right in the middle, I know that there is a God who chased after me even when I was chasing after the people who followed him. And that love, and that grace transformed me and I just believe that if a God who's willing to chase me at my worst and still love me I believe that same God can sustain me through my worst too and next week I wanna jump back to who Saul and Paul is and I wanna continue this conversation around follow but I just want this to sit with us as we wrap up with our final song today because this northern star this fixed point named jesus is the only thing that's not changing six weeks ago when i last spoke here like monkeypox and polio and you know like i mean you just kind of run through the list and like the the department of wildlife in massachusetts is now warning people about bears on the east side and then they're roaming into like the northern part of eastern massachusetts like The world, I thought, was crazy before these six weeks. Now it's even crazier, right? The left has gotten even more left. The right has gotten even more right. And trying to, like, navigate the middle is even harder to do. Like, everything is shifting because that's what everything does. It shifts and it changes. But he never does. That's the good news, at the core of what he's come to do. So I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to respond with a powerful declaration and a song. And then hopefully next week you'll be back or catch in, kind of jump in online, because i want to take this the one step beyond and say the rest of Saul's life, what it looked like because of this moment, and what does it look like for us who are Christ followers to continue to follow him faithfully. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to um, know you, to know this about you. Thank you for who Saul is and who Saul became. And the reality that all of us, regardless of who we are, have hope in you. That there's nothing that we've done. Nothing that we've become. There's nothing that's been done to us or said about us that can transform or take away or rob from us the love and the grace of God freely given through Jesus. So thank you for the simple but very powerful message about what it looks like to follow him. And for those who are following him already, Father, I pray that even in this final song that you would encourage them and inspire them through whatever they're walking through. And for those who have never considered who he is and whether or not you, Jesus, are in fact the way of life, that you would inject in their mind the simple thought, how might I be wrong about Christianity? And thank you for the gift of your word, of the Bible, and the fact that there is no grave that could hold him. And there is no grave that can Hold us down too. Jesus' name. Amen.